So the reading tonight is from Genesis 38, and if you have your pew Bible, it's page 42. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shilar. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for her, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to avoid providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son, Shelah, grows up. For he thought, he may die too, just like his brother's. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shuar, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hirar, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, She took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realising that this was her daughter-in-law, his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, What pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, Where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, 
there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughing stock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shilar, and he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, So this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out. And he was named Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Very good evening. Good to see you all. Um, My name's Chris. Lovely to see you uh, this evening. That chapter of the Bible, that's quite something. Um, yeah, that's, that's um, depraved, that's explicit, that's confusing, that's just plain weird. Um, so we need God's help to understand it. So um, let's pray together and we'll look at it together. Heavenly Father, nothing in your words is there by accident. And we pray so much that you help us to understand it rightly this evening, for your glory and for our good. Amen. Um, Picture this, okay? Um, You have a car, it's an average car, uh, but you manage to damage it in different ways. So first of all, you leave it under a big tree overnight, and you find it in the morning, it's completely covered in the carpet of uh, bird poo. I had that once, it was very annoying. Um, so it's completely covered, and you think, oh, I've got to get rid of that. So I need some chemicals, maybe to make it easier, it's going to take ages otherwise. So, oh, there's some, that's a good, um, cheap, kind of powerful-looking chemical. I'm going to pour that over the car. So you do that. And then you look at it afterwards, and you realize, oh, that's made it completely worse. It's completely rusted. The roof of the car, the windscreen, that hasn't gone well. So you think, okay, well, that's a bit of a ruin. Um, Tell you what, forget the looks of the car, um, let's just go for speed. So you think, okay, well, I'm going to change the engine of the car. Great, let's do that. So you Google and you find a, a good kind of, uh, yeah, again, quite cheap, good value car uh, engine, but it seems quite a powerful engine, second-hand, five-star ratings on the internet. So you think, right, I'm going to get that, and you buy that, and it comes, and you put it in, try to put it in the car and swap it for your engine, but you don't really know what you're doing. So that doesn't go very well, and the car just splutters at best, so that hasn't gone well. 
So it's not going well at all. And um, so you leave it out overnight, uh, nothing much to do with the car. Uh, the next morning you get down and there's graffiti all over it. Uh, because um, people have come by and thought, that car's completely wrecked, it's just graffiti in it. So you think, well, what can I do? And you realize you live at the top of a hill and there's a mechanic at the bottom of the hill. So you're just going to freewheel it down the hill and halfway down the steering brakes. And there's a tree in front of the mechanics and you crash into the tree and it goes, and smoke. And the mechanic comes out and, you know, what's going on here? And you say, well, um, yeah, I realize this car's gone wrong. Can, I mean, it's partly my fault, partly other people's fault, those dodgy people selling things to me, but um, can you redeem it? Can you fix it for me? And I go, uh, and you think, well, I mean, you know, can you like find some people to help with it? You've got like skills, can you, can you do that? Can you redeem it for me? And you go, no. It's too ruined. You can't redeem it. Do you ever worry that God thinks that about you? God looks at you and looks at your life and thinks, no, no, you're, you're too ruined. I can't redeem you. Do you ever think that? Does God think that of you? Genesis 38 says no. He does not think that of you. This is a gruesome chapter of the Bible. There's no escaping it. But it has a simple summary, which is this. Sin ruins, but God redeems. Sin ruins, but God redeems. And if you remember nothing else, remember that from tonight. Sin ruins, but God redeems. Um, To give a bit of context into where we are in the Bible, um, the overall plot of this last part of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, Chapters 37 to 50. is uh, The plot is it's following the family of promise in Genesis. Um, what does that mean? So um, since creation, humanity has turned away from God and turned in on itself. Um, and that's what the Bible calls sin. And God then made a promise in Genesis 3 that eventually a special person would come to crush evil and sin and put things right between humanity and God. And then God made a promise to a man called Abraham that that special person would come through Abraham's family line, eventually. So the family line goes like this. It goes, Abraham, who the promise was made to, and then his son Isaac, his son Jacob, and then Jacob's sons, who we're hearing about in this part of the Bible, including Joseph. Joseph, and also including Judah, the brother of Joseph. And Judah is our focus tonight. We met him a bit last week because he's the one who had the idea to sell Joseph off into slavery. Chapter 38 is it's a bit of a kind of slight detour from the Joseph story. You know, probably why Andrew Lloyd Webber chose not to write a song about it. Um, but a slight detour from that story. But, you know, it's a big marker in the story as a whole. Big marker. But was it Mark? It marks the depths of depravity of sin and the even greater depth of God's rescue. So, sin ruins, but God redeems. Uh, Let's look at the the text. Let's go through it uh, bit by bit. Um, So, um, if you have a Bible near you, do um, open it up. If you'd like to follow along, you might find that very helpful indeed. 
Uh, So verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. So uh, it it starts badly. Uh, Judah's in the family of promise, remember. But he leaves his brothers. He leaves the family. That's a bad sign to start off with. He then marries a Canaanite woman. Now, for the family of promise, that is a very, very big mistake. Because God had warned that uh, the Canaanites had a very, very different religious outlook. And God had warned them, don't intermarry with them. And Judah here seems to treat his new wife like a slot machine, to be frank. So the language here is functional. He met her, he married her, he had sex with her, effectively. Functional. Just treating her like a slot machine. I mean, in a sense, today's equivalent might be marrying someone for their big bank accounts, or marrying for a visa, or marrying for your dreams rather than their dreams, that kind of thing. And Judah seems mainly to dream of sex and children for the family name. And that's what happens. So verse 3, she, uh, Judah's uh, wife, became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Ur. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was Kezib that she gave birth to him. It carries on. Verse 6, Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Now, we're not told what Ur did, but it would have been something awful, something evil. We must assume that. So Ur, Judah's firstborn, is dead. So what's going to happen? Uh, Verse 8, Then Judah said to Onan, the second son, Sleep with your brother's wife, Tamar, and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to avoid providing offspring for his brother. And what he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. Okay, well... (laughs) Uh, the cultural gap between then and now is like vast, just enormous. So um, it was very normal and even honourable, um, it's like 3,000 years ago, that when a man died without an heir, uh, for his brother to uh, marry uh, the widow to try and give his dead brother uh, a family heir, effectively. Now, Onan takes on this responsibility to make Tamar pregnant, but then he fakes it. Probably saw that. He fakes it. He doesn't quite carry it through. Why doesn't he do that? Because if Tamar did get pregnant, that child would get the family inheritance instead of Onan getting it. That's clear. So effectively, Onan fakes the responsibility for his dead brother's wife, all for money and sex, really. And that's why God takes his life as well. It's not pretty. So he fakes the responsibility. And Again, in today's world, it could be something like you know, someone uh, taking power of attorney for an older person, then pushing them to change their will in their favour, perhaps. Responsibility, but kind of faking it, really. That's a horrendous thing to do. Or, I guess, a doctor manipulating a patient for the, thrilling of it, for the thrill of it. 
Despicable thing to do. Responsibility for faking it. So, Ju- so Judah, by this time, he's lost two sons, all because they've been so immoral, so immoral, what they've done. But will Judah learn? No, 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 no. Because the next thing Judah does, instead of blaming his sons, or even himself for being an awful father, instead he blames poor Tamar. Verse 11, Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brother's. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. And what's going on here? Effectively, Judah is being superstitious. So he's thinking, okay, my first two sons slept with Tamar and then died. So I'm not going to let my third son sleep with her either. That would be stupid. But you see, he's being superstitious here because Tamar's done nothing. He's just being superstitious. He's totally blind to how immoral he and his sons have been. He can't see it. He's then unkind to Tamar. Go on, just live with your own father's family. And he lies to her. He's saying, I promise when uh, my third son, Shalat, when he becomes a man, you can marry him as an heir, I promise. But he's got no intention of keeping that promise. So what he's doing, he's permanently sidelining uh, Tamar. That's what he's doing. I guess it's perhaps a bit like having a foster child under your care. But you can't handle things, so you just lock them in a room for months or years. Just permanently sidelined them. It's wicked, cruel, awful thing to do. So this is, this is evil. This is depraved. This is callous. This is deceitful. Judah's sin and his family's sin, it ruins them. And especially it ruins Tamar, who has no power or means to do anything about it. It ruins her. What about us? What about us? I mean, among us here tonight, of whatever age or background, I realize, you know, I would assume that we're affected by sin in all sorts of different ways. Some have been ruined by sin in particular ways, I'm sure, by your sin or by someone else's, or more likely a mixture. And that hurts deeply. You don't need me to tell you that. And you might think, will I ever be able to shake this off? Or will I ever be able to move beyond it? Will it always define me? Others have ruined someone else by our sin, perhaps. Maybe you bury that away or you try to forget about it or maybe try try and justify it, perhaps, in some way. But this is actually all of us to some degree. To some degree, we've all been harmed by our own sin and we've all harmed others by our sin. That's why we confess that every week. It's common to us all. Sin ruins. Sin ruins. Oh, let's move on to the next part of our story. Um, just when you think can't, things can't get any worse. So verse 12. Verse 12, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. 
When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing shearing his sheep, and his friends Hirah the Adamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Anayim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. So Tamar realizes Judah has broken his promise to give his third son Shelah as a husband. He's broken that promise. And it's very poignant, isn't it? You know, she's still been in her widow's clothes. She's lost two husbands, effectively, and she's now her third is denied her as well. Tamar's probably desperate, and she hatches a plan. She knows that sheep shearing time is, let's say, uh, an atmosphere conducive to prostitution. So it's payday time, lots of celebrating that kind of atmosphere, and the men away from home, that kind of thing. And she knows Judah's appetite, shall we say. So she sits in the right place, and she waits Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, she went, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you? She asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. So, so he'll, he'll pay, but he doesn't have enough money on him, I say. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it? She asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. That's his uh, ID, effectively. So he gave them to her and slept with her. And she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. There is no hiding from how awful that is. Sin utterly ruins. It's to see the depth of how depraved sin can get. It carries on. It carries on. Verse 20. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friends, the Adumalite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Anayim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said, there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has, or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. Judah wants the whole affair just to be kept quiet. That's it. You know, he's like, okay, forget about my pledge. Okay, I realize she's taken it, but I don't want to look a fool. Forget about it. Some time goes by, and then this. Verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, 
Bring her out and let her be burned to death. Now, Judah, Judah is the cause of so much misery for Tamar, and now he calls for her final destruction. She's pregnant from prostitution, burn her. Now, that was a very rare punishment. Why does he want to do that? It's rage, isn't it? Rage? I think in two ways. First, moralistic, hypocritical rage. Prostitution, how dare she? What a hypocrite. He's been using prostitutes. Secondly, superstitious, revengeful rage, I think. Now, that woman, that woman caused two of my sons to die. This is my chance. I just want her out of the way for good. Burn her. But what happens next? Verse 25. As Tamar was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Do you see, there's, like, there's likely kind of a crowd around and it's very, very public, lots of witnesses. She's got him. Look, Judah, that's your ID. All these years, your sin has ruined your family and has ruined me, but your sin has caught up with you. What are you going to do, Judah? What are you thinking? Are you going to come up with some kind of innocent explanation, like, you know, say, oh, I had my ID stolen a while back, you know, or just defame her as a serial liar, perhaps? You could have done that. could have done that. In fact, something in Judah starts to change. Verse 26, Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. Literally, he says, she is in the right, not I. Meaning, yeah, that's right. I promised her my third son in marriage. I broke my promise. She's right. I'm wrong. This is a massive moment for Judah. God is beginning to change him. It all begins with seeing his wrong and actually admitting it. Uh, His change is long and it's windy. And and over the next chapters and weeks, um, we'll see it. And look out for it. You'll see, and you'll see him become different. And this is the start of it. But up until this verse here, you'd be forgiven for thinking that there's no way that could happen for this man whatsoever. Sin ruins, but God redeems. Let's think again of ourselves. Have you ever had that kind of moment? Like Judah, confronted with how sin has ruined you to any degree. Maybe even tonight is that kind of moment. Maybe that's come through seeing uh, Pritam's baptism tonight. That he's had that moment of facing up to the impact of sin in his life and saying, yeah, that's me, I'm helpless without Christ. If you sense that moment in you, that is surely God's spirit at work in your heart. Don't ignore that. Welcome God opening your heart that way. 
Now, the chapter would be remarkable enough if it finishes at 20, verse 26. But what about, as a final section, what about these four verses at the end? What about those? Um, well, remember, Tamar was made pregnant by her father-in-law. But then verse 27. When the time came for her, Tamar, to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But then when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you've broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out and he was named Zerah. Okay, this is bizarre in many ways, but it's also very important for the whole Bible picture, big picture. Remember I mentioned at the beginning God's promise that eventually a person would come to crush evil and sin. That was the promise. And that that person would come through Abraham's family line. Perez here becomes the link in that family of promise. So two really important family trees to notice in the Bible. Uh, The first is the very end of the book of Ruth. um, But the second, and I'll show you this, is the very start of Matthew's gospel in the New Testament. That's it up there. I realize that's quite small, uh, but I'll read out the key parts. Um, So Matthew's gospel. And here, it's showing us that the family line of Abraham went all the way down, many hundreds of years later, to Jesus. To Jesus. This is, and this is just the first part of that family line. And the first part, see the summary there. Now, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. You see? The family line goes all the way down to Jesus. So, two huge things to notice here. One is this the horrific chapter that we've read today is Jesus Christ's family history, it's his family line. As one commentator explains, Jesus is descended from a baby born because a lustful hypocrite, that's Judah, mistook his daughter-in-law for a prostitute. Does that shock you? I think that's quite shocking. And that's not all. Have you noticed, have you noticed who else, as well as Judah, is named in Jesus' family history? Let me read So this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Tamar. So Tamar ruined and abused in this chapter, yet here she is named in Jesus' family tree. She's there. Do you see the significance of this? This is so significant. You are never too ruined by sin to be redeemed by God. Here's another explanation of that from that same commentator. I can't put it better than this. So here's a quote and let me read it. Since God's son was born into a family like that, And never think that you are too sinful, too filthy, or too abused to be adopted into God's family through Jesus Christ. 
And since God's son was born into a family like that, then never doubt that God can be at work in your family, in your life. Here is a wonderful assurance that our circumstances can never be too messy for God to be gloriously involved in. This is grace, and here is hope. And I say dwell on that. Dwell on that. Let that soak in. Never think you are too ruined to be adopted into God's family. Never doubt that God can be at work in your family and your life. Sin ruins, but God redeems. So tonight, it's been a horrendous story. Isn't it amazing that that kind of story can become good news to us? God is so gracious. And it's the same for your life too. However horrendous it might be, or however much you might have been ruined, as it were, the story of your life can also become a story of good news. Come to Christ. Be adopted into his family. And let him be at work in your family and your life. Let's take a moment to pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to praise you that you are beyond our wildest dreams. Your grace to us. We are sorry for how we mistreat each other and oblivious often to the ruin. But we want to thank you so much for your undeserved kindness to us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you. And we pray so much that you would work in our hearts to come to you and that you'd be work in our lives, however messy, wherever we've come from in that. We praise you for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.